Thank you for listening to the fifth edition of Development Drums, recorded on 31st of October 2008. This is a special extra edition looking at recent developments in the Eastern Congo. I'm joined by Patrick Smith, the editor of Africa Confidential, who will be explaining the background to the current crisis and looking at what can be done. If you're looking for our normal roundup of current news and development, please listen to the fourth edition of Development Drums, in which I'm joined by Shanta Devarajan and Sheila Page. About 1.2 million people are currently affected by violence in the eastern Congo. I asked Patrick Smith, the editor of the fortnightly newsletter on African politics, to explain what is happening. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at the moment in the Eastern Congo? Uh, well, as of uh, Friday, the 31st of October, there there is a ceasefire, um, which uh, Laurent Nkunda, the um, military leader of uh, the National Congress for the Defense of the People, CNDP militia in um, North Kivu, and 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 he's. He's declared that ceasefire as uh, as of the middle of this week, uh, and uh, so far it's more or less held. And uh, effectively, that puts his forces uh, some some distance away from uh, the capital of North Kivu, uh, Goma. Um, they they took took a military camp called Rumam uh, Rumangabo um, earlier in the week, and that was seen as a uh, as a key point in the conflict, and uh, really the next step after taking that military camp was to uh, advance on Goma. So, so they're holding; they've been holding off. Uh, but unfortunately, what's been happening within Goma is that the the government troops, um, the uh, FARDC troops, as they're known, um, have been running rampage. Uh, they're, they're they're really deserting their posts. Uh, but before they deserting their, uh, desert their posts, they're effectively looting uh, the town of Goma, uh, stealing everything they can get away with, and also um, beating up people, and it is said uh, violating women and children. So um, it, it's a pretty gruesome uh, situation. So Nkunda has advanced in, uh, in northern Kivu, but not, not onto Goma itself. So he's expanded he the territory he holds. Yes, he hasn't. He holds a large chunk of uh, North Kivu. In the way that the, these militias operate, he is probably truer to say that he, he denies access to that territory by people who are not his supporters rather than controls it because he doesn't actually do anything with it. Um, I mean, one can you know then speculate on what he what he, what his project is. Most people most people think that you know he is intending to take Goma and then establish some sort of uh, interim regime there. Why then has he declared a ceasefire? Um, he was under a, a absolutely huge pressure to do so, uh, and it may be that he thinks that if he holds out in this threatening position, uh, a lot of the population will leave, and certainly people, hostile population will leave, and also, of course, the, uh, the government forces will leave, and they are, in fact, exactly following that, uh, that precedent. That, that, that sort of makes people remember what happened in the 1996-1997 war 
when Rwanda scooted across the country and uh, effectively um, took half the country without fighting because their troops would surround a, surround a city, a town, uh, and then they, the military ta- uh, jargon was they'd leave the back door open. So the, 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 the troops, government troops defending that town and the people in that town could go out through the back door and leave a deserted town and the Rwanda troops would just move in and take it. Uh, so it, it may be that he's employing those sort of tactics so to let, let Goma almost empty out before he takes it and therefore there'll be a minimum of, uh, of, of fighting and bloodshed. So we've got a huge number of displaced civilian population at this point. There's, um, by the counts of the International Red Cross at the moment, there is at least a million people displaced. So far, they're talking about uh, concerns for another 200,000. All of these people are being caught between this sort of uh, vice of uh, Nkundu's troops on one hand and the government troops on the other. And most importantly for them, apart from the, vi- the threats of violence, there's also the fact they can't get access to food and water, so, or, or of course medicals, uh, med- um, me- me- medical treatment. So uh, they're in very, a very, very bad way. So, that's a, so the, the life, uh, lives of about 1.2 million people are currently threatened by, by this fighting. And that's clearly a huge number of people. And the news... Um, recently has been that the international NGOs are, if anything, withdrawing their staff from the region. Is that is that what you're hearing? Uh, yes. Um, what's happening is that there, as unfortunately usually happens in these circumstances, uh, all the international staff leave and the nationals carry on and try to do the best they can uh, with the local people. Uh, and that's been the case from... Uh, uh, with, with several of the, the Western NGOs I've heard, um, uh, they're, 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 they're evacuating the international staff out and um, leave, leaving some structures in place and the capacity to do what they can uh, in terms of ba- 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 basic relief uh, facilities. But, uh, you know, conditions are, are, are worsening and worsening because uh, it doesn't really, well, it, it matters that there's a ceasefire, of course, because that does reduce violence. But at the end of the day, there is a stranglehold around uh, Goma. It's like a noose. And, and uh, whether or not the fighting restarts, or, um, the, the supplies are being disrupted, so, pe- so people are running out of food and medicines. And there's talk today that the European Union is going to provide uh, large quantities of new aid. In, in what form will that arrive? How will they deliver that? Through the Red Cross? Uh, I would imagine, yes. I mean, there's, there's two possible uh, ways of doing that, either through the ICRC, uh, which does, uh, does have access. And there, well, there are other groups. I mean, MSF is still operating um, a, a service there at the moment, Medicine Sans Frontier. Uh, and the other project uh, suggested, proposed by uh, Monsieur Bernard Kushner, the French foreign minister, and seconded by the Belgian foreign minister, is for an EU intervention force to go in with a, a humanitarian objective. Now, um, that's, a lot of people would support that because they, they, they take the view that the United Nations military force is not, is not uh, fulfilling its mandate is not protecting the civilians it's meant to be protecting uh, and uh, 
the alternative is either to boost that uh, UN force immediately, and that, that doesn't look very likely, or to send in a force that has the military capacity to make the difference. And the only force that would be available within a short period of time would be a European Union battle group to go in there, uh, 2,000, 3,000 strong, uh, and keep the peace and distribute humanitarian um, requirements. And uh, so that is what Kushner is pushing, uh, along with his Belgian counterpart. Uh, however, the uh, Germans and the British are very skeptical about that uh, for three basic reasons. Uh, first one is logistical. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult operation to do it militarily at this stage. Uh, they wouldn't be able to use Goma Airport. Uh, they'd have to either use Entebbe, uh, Ugandan Airport, or, the, or um, Kigali, the Rwandan Airport, and the Rwandans would be unlikely to give them permission to do it. Um, Number two, uh, there are a shortage of European soldiers at the moment uh, because of the deployments they have in Iraq and Afghanistan. And third, I sense there's also um, a difference of uh, political view on what's going on in the Congo between the British and the Germans on one side and the French and the Belgians on the other. And is this difference to do with um, the extent to which Rwanda is backing General Nkunda? It, it, it's very much about uh, the role of Rwanda. Uh, the British have been historically, since the 1994 genocide, extremely sympathetic to uh, President Paul Kagame's uh, government in, in Kigali, uh, and they've tended to... to uh, take his side either openly or, or not so openly in, in uh, internal discussions, in Security Council, uh, and so forth. Uh, the French have been uh, <laughs> fairly openly hostile to uh, Kagame, uh, General Kagame, since '94, uh, and that hostility sort of reached its apogee in November 2006 when uh, France and Rwanda severed diplomatic relations and uh, just to drive the point in a little bit further, um, Rwanda issued a report in August naming uh, a range of senior officials, some of whom are, are, are still uh, in, in public service in France, um, and naming them as responsible and implicated in the 1994 genocide uh, when uh, President Francois Mitterrand was around uh, and uh, was running the government of France was seen to be extremely sympathetic uh, and a strong supporter of the regime under whose watch the genocide happened. So from your view, where do you, do you think that Rwanda is supporting the uh, CNDP or um, it, do you think that uh, where else would Nkunda be getting his support from? Well, he's certainly getting his arms um, from his, uh, his military operations. There's no doubt about that. He's, he, he, he has committed an, a, a number of audacious raids on uh, the government forces and their armory and, and, and got away with uh, tanks, rocket-propelled grenade launchers. I mean, there was a raid in um, December last year in, in, in a camp at uh, government uh, camp, army camp at Mushoki. He got away with six tons of ammunition, 45 armored vehicles, 20 RPGs, 50, uh, 15,000 boxes of grenades. So he's, a, a, you know, he's quite a resourceful guy. Um, 
Now, there are a number of UN investigations, uh, there have been a number of UN investigations, there's one going on at the moment, and I'm told uh, they're looking very closely at the links between the Rwandan government and Nkunda, and may have found something. Um, I think the, the test really of Rwanda's sincerity in all this is not, uh, in, in the short term, what can be done to prove that there are links, but what is Rwanda going to do to stop the conflict, and, and it's done precisely nothing. It claims, and I don't think anyone believes this, uh, that it has no influence over Laurent Nkunda. And I think for, for General Kagame to say that if I told Nkunda to stop, he wouldn't stop. If I told him that I would, I, I would call his soldiers to order, they wouldn't obey me. Um, I, I, a lot of people just wouldn't believe that. So no. I think, yeah. Well, one, one reason why Rwanda might have an interest in this is because of the fear of Hutu militias in, yep. the, in the area. Um, yep. is, is that still a serious threat? I mean, does, does Rwanda have a legitimate interest in protecting itself from Hutu militias? That, I mean, this, of course, is all the unfinished business since the 94 genocide. Um, and the, the, there's no doubt that uh, many of the genocidaires uh, were virtually all of the genocidaires who didn't get out further field to, to Europe or to the rest of Africa, uh, ended up in eastern Congo and, and regrouped and formed themselves into these militias uh, that proceeded mainly to prey upon local people, uh, lo local Congolese. Um, from all the evidence in the last decade or so, these, these uh, groups and their such as the FDLR, which is sort of an organized Hutu force with a political agenda in Rwanda, uh, they have been attacking local people, uh, and they've been imperiling the lives of Congolese rather than Rwandans. They certainly um, haven't made any successful forays into Rwanda. And a lot of people would say that they, they right now, uh, 14 years after the genocide, they don't um, represent uh, a serious threat. Of course, um, it depends what their strategy is. You know, if, if they had a really uh, clever strategy of going back and infiltrating themselves in Rwanda and setting up covert militias and so on, they could, you know, they could be the basis for uh, the undermining of Rwandan security. But anyone who, who knows Rwanda know, uh, would know that it, it's run extremely tightly uh, and military intelligence uh, it, it, it is, uh, it, it is pervasive, uh, so it would be very difficult for a group like that to, co to, to come back and, and to, to do harm. But that, but, that, but that has been the pretext of Rwanda's interest and involvement in the Congo for, 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 for the past 10 years. Um, so it, it's difficult to make the case that this group is currently an, act, uh, an active threat to Rwanda, but it, it uh, it has to be said that you know their ultimate aim is to go back into Rwanda and, and destabilize it and take power. There's no, there's no question of that. But the, 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 the reality at the moment is they show no signs of doing that. And, and in fact, the people who are, who are suffering from, uh, from their operations are the Congolese people themselves. And that really gets to the point of the failure of the Congolese army itself to deal with this issue. I mean, it, it, it's whether the FDLR are a threat to Rwanda or they're a threat to the Congolese or both, they are a nuisance. They're, they're, a, they're a militia that roam around the countryside grabbing resources and beating people up and are responsible for uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an obscenely high level of violence in that area and, and for depredations against ordinary people. Something's got to be done about them.
So if I can put you on the spot, if you, uh, we, we've got some tension now within the European Union between the UK and Germany on one hand and France and Belgium on the other, we've got a, a massive humanitarian disaster unfolding and little prospect of being able to uh, really help the civilian population who are affected by it. What, what would you do if you were, if if you had the the power to send in troops or send in money, or um, what what would be what would be the key steps that you would take now? Well, I, I think you, you've got to start. I mean, with 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 the first principle. The first principle, to my mind, is you've got 1.2 at least million people um, under threat. Those people have got to be protected. Um, the, the countries of the world who subscribe to the UN have sent in 17,000 troops to do that job in Congo. And those troops, for a variety of reasons, have failed. Some would say failed absolutely. So somehow that force has to be strengthened. And I think in, in, in reality, um, we would, I think a lot of people would like to see, you know, a really effective African force going in, properly armed and properly airlifted with proper intelligence capacity to deal with immediately. That force isn't available. We have to be realistic. The only force that's conceivably available is, is the one that Kushner is talking about, which would be a European Union battle group of the kind that went into Ituri in northeastern Congo back in 2003 and went in on a short mandate, a three-month mandate, when there were similar uh, uh, attacks, random attacks, and very targeted attacks in some cases by militia uh, that, that were displacing hundreds of thousands of people and, and causing death and starvation. Uh, and that European force, I, I, I was reporting from Ituri at that time, uh, and they, they very quickly established themselves effectively, partly because of the professionalism of the soldiers uh, and partly because they had the equipment and the logistics to, to do that. Uh, and um, I, I think uh, they, that's the sort of force that, 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 needs to, that needs to be sent in if we're serious about saving lives. And I think we should be serious about saving lives. After all, five and a half million people have died in Congo over the past decade uh, for, for the failures uh, of all of us uh, to support uh, a more robust uh, force there. Um, now, I'm not saying that, you know, that the, the, the military option, it, it, it will stand alone. There has to clearly be serious diplomacy, committed diplomacy at the highest level to bring the parties, and that's Kabila, that's Nkunda, and I believe Kagame, into some sort of dialogue to deal with this. And then, and then you, you know, then I think you've got a whole set of other uh, policies to go through, which are much longer-term policies, but the obvious one is... It is the restructuring and the reform of the Congolese army, which has been piecemeal and unaccountable and actually disastrous because the army doesn't work uh, and isn't accountable to anyone. But, uh, you know, that, that's part and parcel with the solution of getting rid of the militias and trying, trying to deal with those militias. Patrick Smith, it's, a, it's an absolutely vital challenge that we get this right. Thank you for joining us on Development Grounds to explain what's happening. That's all for this special edition of Development Drums. Thank you to Patrick Smith of Africa Confidential for explaining the situation in the Eastern Congo so clearly. You can find Africa Confidential at www.africa-confidential.com. From me, Owen Bader in Addis Ababa, thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time.